Hello, hello, hello. All right, check. All right, you guys, I got the face mic today. Let's go. Um, so we'll be out of here in about 45 minutes. Just kidding, Mark. Just kidding. Um, hey, uh, my name is Caleb White, as uh, Pastor Mark introduced at the top of uh, today. And, and I get to talk about worship this morning, so I'm real excited. We're going to be in the book of Ezra. So if you have your Bibles, uh, no need to be like a Bible drill hero. Just flip over to the table of contents. Like, it's all good. I know we don't read Ezra a whole lot. And so make your way there. And as you do that, I just want to give us a quick rundown of where we've been the past couple of weeks, not just because everyone's in and out for the summer, but it actually paints a really good context for where we'll be in Ezra 3. And so if you'll remember a couple weeks ago, uh, Pastor Thomas taught from the book of Jeremiah, and we saw how God's people uh, were in exile, and they were carried off into a place called Babylon. They didn't really respect their God, they didn't respect Yahweh, and they made it hard for uh, the people of Israel to worship, but God gave them this promise that he was going to send them back uh, to Jerusalem to rebuild. And then last week, uh, Pastor Tanner uh, taught from the book of Daniel. And we looked at uh, the life of Daniel, how God rescued him from the lion's den, a great story that uh, some of us have heard a a lot. But we also looked at uh, how uh, Daniel prayed to God and communed with him. And it was through that relationship that God formed Daniel into the type of person who could live faithfully uh, in the midst of exile. And so today, uh, when we get good news, like Israel is coming home. And, and God, uh, in his grace and in his mercy, uh, is fulfilling uh, his promise to his people. And so if you've made your way over to Ezra, I just want you to glance at chapter one, uh, give it a quick skim, and you'll see in the first couple of verses um, that God is good on his promises. Like, uh, just off the bat, that's not even like one of our points this morning, but you'll read <laughs> that, uh, that God moves in the heart of King Cyrus to send his people back to Jerusalem according to fulfill what he had spoken um, to the prophet Jeremiah. And so that's for free this morning. Like we serve a good God who's faithful on his promises. We just sang about it. All of his promises are sure. They're a sure thing that we can bank on. And so uh, you're in chapter one, flip over a page, depending on how your Bible's laid out, and get to Ezra three. And so this morning, that's where we're gonna camp out And we're going to see three things. I keep blowing on this mic, you guys. We're going to see three things about worship um, that I think will be instructive for us this morning. We're going to see the priority of worship. We're going to see the problem of worship. And then we're going to see the perfection of worship. So this is Ezra 3. I'm just going to read it for us. It says this. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns... The people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Then Joshua, son of Josadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and the evening sacrifices. Then, in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the festival of tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. 
And after that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred festivals of the Lord, as well as those brought uh, as freewill offerings to the Lord. And on the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. And so we're going to talk about our first point, and the first thing that we see is the priority of worship. And so just like place yourself kind of in the story for a moment, if you will. Uh, Your hometown, um, years and years and years ago, um, was raided and ransacked. And your place of worship, which was like the community hub, uh, was burned to the ground. Not only that, you're kidnapped basically into another land that doesn't respect you and doesn't respect your God. And I mean, imagine like raising kids, imagine raising a family under those circumstances. You would have to tell them, hey guys, like this isn't our home. We're actually, we're kind of in this other spot and all these bad things happen, but and God is, is good on his promise. He's gonna send us back. And then there's just a lot of waiting. And then God, because this is what he does, he sends rescue and he stirs up the heart of this king that doesn't even really worship him to send you home, right? So it's like pack the minivan, family, family's coming back, like we're gonna rebuild our house and we're gonna rebuild all these things. And I mean, just imagine the excitement that you would have being sent back. And, you know, as kids do, you, you kind of start the journey and they're, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? You know, and uh, you make this long journey back to Jerusalem and you kind of drop your, drop your bags and you come, you come into town, you gather with your people and you decide what's the first thing we're going to do. What we see here is that the first thing they do is build the altar and, and if you're familiar with the temple, I tried to find a picture, but they all were terrible. Uh, and it, it was this building, right? And, and inside the building, you had a place where you worshiped, and then there was this altar, and then there was this holy of holy spot inside the middle of the temple, and it was kind of like the hot spot of God's presence. And so you're telling me that this is the first thing that they're going to do when they come back to their hometown to rebuild, is build one piece of the inside of their place of worship. Like there's literally anything else they could have done that makes more sense than this to us. Like how about gather the troops? How about host like an anti-invasion seminar? Like so this whole exile thing doesn't happen again, right? But they rebuild the altar. And I just wanna ask us this this question this morning is like why? Like why do they rebuild the altar? And as I sat with this, uh, you know, I was excited. Mark asked me to preach, and I was excited, man, I'm going to talk about worship. And what I found as I s- sat with this text is the priority of worship, it's actually really about obedience. And uh, there's two things um, that they prioritize, and, and it shows us uh, this truth, that true safety is found in obedience to God, and obedience is the foundation of worship. There's anything else they could have done to keep themselves safe, but they actually realize what sometimes we forget is that true safety is found in being obedient to God. It's in following the God who's already in charge of our life anyway, right? right. And so we see two things that they prioritize in their worship. They prioritize God's word. 
and we're just going to summarize that with Revelation, but they also prioritize action. And so if you look at verse 2, look look back down at verse 2, you'll see this. Um, These priests with really awesome names, Josedek, Zerubbabel, I mean, Shealtiel. If you're looking for good kids' names, I mean, it's... Just take a no off in the margins. But they start to do these sacrifices when they build the altar. And if you'll look at the end of verse 2, it says, in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. And if you skip down to verse 4, it just starts with, then in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the festival of tabernacles. And, and this is instructive for us this morning because uh, this, these two things, revelation and, and response, they they actually do what God says. Like this shorthand, uh, as it is written in the law of Moses, it's talking about the Torah. It's talking about the first five books of what we're holding in our hands, the scriptures. And for them, when God brought the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt in the story of the Exodus, God gave them these instructions on how to worship him. And one of those is the festival of shelters or tabernacles or booths Um, Some of your translations might say, and this was a a really cool um, way that God had set up uh, for Israel to remember the story of the Exodus. And so they would actually take a whole week and do all these sacrifices and burnt offerings and things, and they would live in these makeshift uh, like tents and shelters uh, to, to remember that, man, God saved us. He brought us out of Egypt. And even though we were in the wilderness, in these, uh, in these tents and in these makeshift shelters, he's good on his promises, and he brought us to the promised land. And so we see with, with these two things, uh, they, they actually remember the word of God, and they actually just respond by doing it. And and so I want to offer this definition of worship, right? Because if, if worship is about obedience, I think worship is this. It's worship is the revelation, the rhythm of revelation and response. Worship is the rhythm of revelation and response. And so we see this here. I just want to break this down for us. But worship is a rhythm. Like it's a pattern of living and being towards a certain end, Like your life, your life rhythm, the way that you live is leading you somewhere. And it's a pattern of revelation and response, meaning that God reveals himself to us. He's done that in two ways. Mainly, he's done it in creation, but also he's done it through his word. And as we, as we realize those things about God, as he makes himself known to us, we respond in light of God's revelation to us. And so Ezra 3 paints a really good picture of this because they remember the law of Moses. They remember what's prescribed. They remember what is written. And they not only do that, but they actually put it into action. And that's worship. Worship is obedience. And as I sat with that, I wanted to say like basically everything else about worship except talk about obedience this morning. Um, But it's just funny how the Lord does that. And, um, And so as I sat with this, I realized that there's actually a problem. Like, there's a problem of worship. And I think uh, it goes a little bit like this. Um, A lot of the times, I don't really want to do what God reveals to me. Like, I don't want to obey. Like, I read this thing, and if I understand it, I just really don't want to do it. 
God calls me to sacrifice my preferences, my time, money, forgive others, all these things that we learn in the scripture. And there's a problem with worship in my heart is, is I don't want to do those things. Like, I don't want to respond in obedience. And I'm going to go out on a limb this morning and say that I'm not the only one in this room who feels like that a lot of the time. Amen? And so, you know, we want to do what we want to do, when we want to do it, whenever, with whoever we want. We just don't want to obey. And if obedience is the foundation of worship, we've got a worship problem. And the problem and the tension is this. We don't want to worship God. We want to be our own gods. And humans have been doing this since chapter 3 of the Bible. They've been doing this since the garden. It's the same lie that Adam and Eve believed from the serpent is that God is holding out on us. And if we obey him, it's not going to be as fun or uh, things aren't going to work out. And it's Satan's most successful conspiracy theory that God isn't good, that he's not in charge, and that, that we can follow what we want to do and it's going to work out well. And when we do this, we're, we're elevating ourselves and our preferences and our desires in the place of God. And the Bible calls this idolatry. The Bible calls this sin. And, and I want to offer a, another kind of definition this morning, and it's this. It's sin is worship gone wrong. Sin is worship gone wrong. It, it's Romans 1, 21 through 25 says this. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being, and birds, and animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over to their sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another, and they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. This is what happens when worship goes wrong. Our hearts are darkened, our thinking gets messed up, and we reap the consequences. And, and maybe you're here this morning and you're like, this seems really intense. Like, welcome to church, I guess. Glad you came. Um, and you're like, I, I don't have like an idol factory in my garage. Like I'm not making little statues, but here's the thing is that, um, there's a theologian named John Calvin and, and he simply said like our hearts, the human heart is just this factory of idols. Like that's what we do. We're wired for worship, but, but man, with our sinful condition, we worship everything else except God. We exchange uh, the, the worship of God for the worship of other things. And I just want to offer um, uh, some food for thought from maybe a, an unlikely source this morning. Uh, maybe you don't agree with what I just said or, or you're kind of struggling through it. And I think one of the best explanations uh, of this, how we're hardwired to, to worship, but we worship other things, and, and then it doesn't work out well for us, uh, actually comes from a guy named David Foster Wallace. And um, if you know David Foster Wallace, you know that he, um, uh, he, he since passed away, but he was an author. Uh, he wrote a book called Infinite Jest. But uh, he was also a professor, and he was also an atheist, uh, someone who didn't believe in God. 
and he gives this commencement speech um, at Kenyon College. It's can be known as This is Water. And it says this. I'm just going to read some of it for us. Again, this is someone who, who doesn't even believe in God. And he, he's talking about just living life, and he says this. Because here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. Remember, he's an atheist. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And he goes on uh, just to talk about how um, uh, there's different gods that people worship. And, and he starts talking about the, the earthly things that we worship. And he says this, pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, you will never have enough. Never feel like you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power and you end up feeling weak and afraid. You'll need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect being seen as smart and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're all evil or sinful. It's that they're unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. And I know that's a long quote. Thanks for hanging with me. But I just love that because a person who would say, I just don't really believe that there's a God, actually says, actually, when you're living life, we'd never live like that. Like, there's no such thing as not worshiping. And so the question becomes, like, what do we worship? If you've got to worship something, if it's hardwired into our DNA to worship something, the question this morning is, what or who do you worship? And for me, uh, one of the things that I've learned uh, just uh, about myself through, through the grace of God um, is that I worship comfort. And um, it, some of you guys know, but we uh, have a daughter named Olivia. And uh, three years ago, she was born. And seconds after she was born, we realized that she has uh, a fat mass attached to the back of her spine. And doctors didn't know what it was. Um, it was already an intense moment because birth is intense. And then you've got a bunch of doctors and nurses trying to figure out what is going on. Um, and so that was chaotic for us. And uh, we figured out that she has a form of spina bifida. I mean, God has been gracious uh, to her and allowed her to grow and be able to run and walk and belt frozen while like running around our house and do all the things. But this was a moment when it started to mess with my idol and my worship of comfort. Like, that's what I slip into worshiping if I'm not careful. And so, man, we were driving to Houston uh, to see specialists. There were medical bills. There was all-day invasive, like, procedures for Olivia that no one uh, wanted to be a part of. And life became uncomfortable and out of our control. So I started to feel crushed and disappointed and anxious and angry, all because... 
I was trusting in my ability to create and craft my own comfort. I had traded the comfort that comes from God for the comfort that I can manufacture for myself. In the end, it crushed me. And so I'm going to throw a picture up there. Um, if you can see this far, uh, I have this banner hanging in my office. You can come see it and say hi later. But <clears throat> it says this, comfort is a slow death. And uh, objectively, I just think it looks really cool. But, <laughs> but uh, and Mark, is, it like took me so many months to figure out what to hang in my, in my office. Um, Mark can attest to that. But uh, I, I put that up there because it just reminds me that that's my default setting, is that like if, when I get pulled away from worshiping God, I start worshiping comfort. I want things to be easy. I don't want to have hard conversations. I just want to, to feel good about how my life is going, and I'll put God on the back burner. And so I don't know what your, your idol this morning, or a lot of times we say from the platform, like your little G God, it's like this fake God that we kind of make. Uh, but it could be power, control, it could be sex or alcohol, it could be political parties, social, rec- social recognition, success, it could be your work, it could be even your family, your kids, and, and being viewed as having all that figured out and together. It could be material possessions, it could be that number at the top of your banking account app. And I don't know what your little G God is this morning, but I know that we all have one because no one in this room is a perfect worshiper. We're not perfect worshipers. There's a problem with our worship. And if we're left to our own devices and nobody is a perfect worshiper, what do we do? Well, we look to what the people of Israel rebuilt. We look to the altar. And here's where we see the perfection of worship. And now the altar and, and everything that comes with it, um, and you can see a lot of that in the book of Leviticus. If you're back in the recap class, I got, again, the joy of, of teaching through that, um, which was, was very difficult. But I, I learned a couple of things uh, about Leviticus. And, and uh, there's all these offerings and all these sacrifices, and it's weird and confusing. Uh, but I want to offer this morning that there are actually just two main categories of offerings. And we'll put them on the screen for you. It's, it's one, there's offerings to say thank you to God. And then there's offerings to say I'm sorry to God. And so the, the first category, offerings to say thank you to God, it, it would be like putting bread and oil and incense and all these things on the altar and, and burning them up. And, and it would be uh, in, just in response to God when, when he would provide for them. And, and it was a way just to honor God and to say thank you. But that second category, offerings to say, I'm sorry to God, is where things get a little weird. People start killing animals and like sprinkling blood, if you've ever read Leviticus, and and things get get really weird. And and at the center uh, uh, of the book of Leviticus in chapters 16 and 17, we see this, uh, one of the sacrifices, and it's called the Day of Atonement. And, and actually, it's not just at the, the middle of Leviticus. If you'll remember, there's five books of the, he, the, the Jewish Bible, which is called the Torah, and Leviticus actually sits in the middle. And so it's in the middle of the middle. It's almost as if this is the center point of the, the Hebrew Scriptures, uh, and it's called the Day of Atonement. And atonement, uh, just for our purposes this morning, uh, to offer another definition, is just the reconciliation between God and humans. It's being made right with God. 
And so you'll, you'll see in, in the Day of Atonement, um, that this, this priest would take two goats, and, and one goat, he would confess uh, the sins of the people for that year, and then he would send it off into the wilderness as, as a scapegoat. That's kind of where we get that term. Um, and it was this picture of, of the removal of guilt away from Israel. But the other goat, the other lamb, it would take and it would sacrifice it, it would kill it on the altar, and he would sprinkle the blood all around the temple and around the altar. And then he would go into the Holy of Holies. This was like the only time of year under these very certain circumstances that the high priest could enter in to the Holy of Holies, which is the hot spot of God's presence. And he would sprinkle blood everywhere in order to purify and to make atonement. Um, and we're like, you sprinkled blood to clean things? I just don't understand how that works. But that's what he would do. He would just sprinkle blood everywhere and it would purify um, the temple. And it was a symbol of making atonement for the people of Israel that year. And, and uh, why is this important? It's important because God knows us. He knows that we're imperfect worshipers and he makes away. You see, it's actually in God's grace that he provides this day of atonement. He instructs the people of Israel to carry out this ritual. And you're like, yeah, but all the blood, like there's got to be a different way. Uh, but we see how this is explained in Leviticus 17, 11. We'll put it up on the screen. Uh, it's kind of this, this odd verse, but it just says this. This is uh, God speaking to his people, and he says, For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. And so you're sitting there like, is this guy about to like bring a lamb out? And like, is there going to be blood everywhere? No, although that would be an amazing illustration. Uh, we, we don't need to do that um, because we see uh, on this side, in this, in this point in salvation history that we are alive, we get to look back and see what every sacrifice and what the altar pointed to, which is the perfect worshiper, Jesus. And, and so if you'll remember, we did this uh, forever series in the book of John. Uh, it's actually my favorite book, so uh, go look at the audio for that. But in John 129, uh, there's this guy named John the Baptist, and, and, and Jesus kind of appears on the scene, and he says this, the next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him, and he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we read that today, and we're like, he's He's a lamb, like he's not, he's just very clearly a man. Uh, but, but for that audience, for those people, immediately they would have thought, oh, th this is connecting to the altar. This is connecting to sacrifice. This is connecting to the day of atonement. What John is prophesying about is that Jesus is going to be the one final lamb that takes away not just the people of Israel's sin, but the sin of the whole world. And not just once a year, remember the Day of Atonement was a yearly thing. They had to do this year after year, but he would do it once and for all. This is the good news. And, and as, I, as I sat with this, um, literally last night, um, I, I was reminded, and, and I, ha I had this doubt in my mind, like, okay, but I'm talking about the Day of Atonement. We're talking about the altar. Jesus is the sacrifice but Jesus wasn't killed on the altar. 
Like he wasn't, they didn't do like a human sacrifice on the altar in the temple. And so how can we be sure that, that Jesus' death actually atoned for our sins? Right, like this is a question we have to ask. It, and the Lord in his grace reminded me uh, of one um, giant yet hilariously small clue to this. Um, and it's in Matthew 27. We'll put it up on the screen. This is right when Jesus dies on the cross. It says this, And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. It was torn in two from top to bottom. And that one little phrase changes the way that God's people worship forever. It changes our access to God because now that spot, the hot spot of God's presence that was only reserved for this religious elite person who was super purified once a year with, with all of this uh, purification rituals going on, that, that place is now ripped open for people to enter in. I mean, he literally made the way, right? I mean, like, you, you can't get any more on the nose than this. And this is how we know that the sacrificial system is over because Jesus is the once for all sacrifice. And, and Hebrews 9 uh, summarizes this nicely. It says this, For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter into heaven, nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. This is the good news. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away for the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. This is the good news that we are saved from our sin, that Jesus is his work, we use that phrase a lot, but it just means his atonement, what he did, his sacrifice on the cross is the true and greater sacrifice that all these sacrifices were pointing to. And it's not only that we're made right with God. If you remember that weird verse in Leviticus 17, it's that the life of something is in its blood. And so we not only get free from our sins, but we are offered life because of Jesus's blood. We have... Uh, the ability to enter into God's presence, to enter into a relationship with him. And uh, we actually sang about it uh, this morning. I just want to read this for us. This is uh, that first song that we sang. It's called Enter In, um, appropriately enough. And it just says this, the great invitation, the day of salvation has come, so enter in. We have the permission and there are no conditions, so come and enter in. And here's the key. The veil is torn, and there's an open door to the King of heaven to be in his presence. Every sinner, that is every imperfect worshiper, right? And every saint come and worship him, because by his grace and mercy, he has made us holy. And here's our response this morning. 
now we boldly run to him. There's no more need for the altar. There's no more sacrifice to be made. Jesus' blood was enough. He's paid it all, and he's invited us into a life of worship. Jesus is the ultimate hope for us imperfect worshipers this morning. And it's actually even better news because, because it's not just about his death, it's about his life. And Jesus is the only sacrifice who kept on living. Amen? Like he left the tomb empty on the third day and he rose uh, to, to life and he offers that life to us. He wants to rescue us from worshiping the things that lead us to death and he wants to rescue us into worshiping him alone who can bring life. And and as the band comes, I just want to put this before us, and the veil is torn. Like, God has made a way for you to come and to know him and to worship him alone. Jesus' blood is enough to cover for anything you've done, past, present, and the things that you will do that you don't even know about. It's enough. And, And the question is this morning, will you enter into that life that Jesus bought for you? Will you enter in? Because you can be in his presence now. The blood of Jesus paid it all. Will you respond with your entire life lived responding to this good news?